Hello and welcome to the seventh episode of season two of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any elements that have parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm poet and chairman of the unknown, Giles Goff. And I'm dad in training and lord protector of the unseen, Phil Coleman. And during this time of lockdown, we'll be trying to stave off the desire to dance like no one is watching by sticking our film geek fedoras on to analyse the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> the 2011 urban fantasy film starring Matt Damon and Emily Blunt. Phil, what did you think of this film about a man falling head over heels in love with a brunette called Elise and going to extreme lengths to be with her? I mean, I had to double check that they hadn't been on my Facebook page recently <laughs> and that they hadn't been stalking my Instagram because it felt, it felt quite autobiographical. <laughs> in that sense for those who don't know my, my wife is American her name is Elise and we spent a long time before getting together just basically chasing each other across the globe and you're right it is very romantic thank you and what did you think of the film? I think I texted you whilst, mm. uh, whilst I was watching the film the other day and I was just like, this is so frustrating. Because <laughs> <laughs> obviously Matt Damon, he, just, he would like to be with that lady in ways. And these people in fedoras just keep turning up, just being like, no, you can't. Yeah. No, you yeah, can't. Yeah. I've just tripped you up with my mind. Did you see like, that? And it's just like, stop! <laughs> you know what I mean? I just spent the whole time just being like, but it's Emily Blunt. <laughs> just, just give him, give a man a break. He's just lost this election. And it's Emily Blunt's just there, just kind of like, look at me, I'm very attracted to you, Matt Damon. And Matt Damon's just there like, I'm sorry, I cannot because of the forces. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I have, um, I enjoyed it, believe it or not. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good grief. I think I kind of love this film. That is not to say that it's perfect. It's it's very loosely based on a, a short story by Philip K. Dick, and I think his running time slightly overstays its welcome for a plot so thin. But our job is not to analyse the relative merits of a film. We'll no doubt make another podcast for that. When we've got time. <laughs> when we're done with this one. Yeah. Our job is to come up with something interesting to say about it. So, without further ado, let's hear Phil's Facts. Okay, so the Adjustment Bureau is a 2011 American science fiction romantic thriller film, try saying that three times fast, mm -hmm. written and directed by George Nolfi. It was actually his first film as well. As he said, based on the 1954 Philip K. Dick short story, Adjustment Team. The phone number given to Matt Damon by Emily Blunt in the movie, the number being 212-664-7665, is owned by Universal Studios and has oh. appeared in other films distributed by the company, definitely maybe in 2008, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World in 2010 and Munich in 2005. It was implemented in an effort to avoid the much overused 555 mm. prefix that you'd see in like every film ever. If you were actually to call that number now, it'll just ring indefinitely forever. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, it's either very ominous or Universal Studios just rude. <laughs> you know? So yeah. According to Emily Blunt, filming at the Statue of Liberty was frequently interrupted by onlookers yelling out, Mad Damon, in imitation of the puppet from Team America World Police in 2004. It's been I... 16 years, <laughs> and I think the fella probably needs a break now. Do you know what I, I mean? I, I did try and do it in, in a way that people would understand, but in a no. way that wasn't totally offensive like it is in that film. <laughs> Some of Emily Blunt's dancing scenes were completed using a body double. Dancer Acacia Shakte, I think, of the Cedar Lake Company, with the actress's face being digitally placed on the dancer's body. Oh, really? Okay. There, there was a point, actually, where 
when I was watching it, I I, I saw I, I was watching obviously Emily Blunt's character. There was I think it was a bit where um, he finally gets to the dance studio and he sees mm. her dancing after he's been sort of pursued. There was just a moment, and I looked at it and I was like, "That's not Emily Blunt." <laughs> you know what I mean? You, I just saw her face and I was just like, yeah, I, "That's been CG'd on." I, I don't know how I could tell. I don't think I picked up on that, possibly because I was I was furiously writing the script for this episode when uh, <laughs> when I was watching that scene. If it was anybody else, I think I would have assumed there was a dance body double. But yeah. if you've seen what Emily Blunt can do with her body in Edge of Tomorrow. You know where she does that sort of yoga move where she's supporting yeah, that, her entire was... body weight on her hands. She did that again on the press tour whilst pregnant. Honestly, she... Emily Blunt is just a screaming badass and you just work on the assumption that she can, she can do whatever she damn well pleases. I wouldn't want to throw hands with her at all. Yeah. Like, you know, she'd, she'd, she'd just throw hands right back and I'd be, I'd be a mess. Moving on. Again, another name that I may pronounce incorrectly, okay. uh, but I will do my best. Actress Shora Agdash uh, played, it says God here, but yeah. the, chair, the chairman. Yeah, it's, it was, it's sort of assumed, but... It, it's the scene that was cut, wasn't it? Yeah, so there was a scene that was cut, and sh- this lady was meant to play him. Uh, according to Shora Agdashlu herself, in a Los Angeles Times interview, she was replaced by the studio because she was raised a Muslim, and the studio wasn't ready for a Muslim to play God in her in a movie. Her exact quote was, the director, George Nolfi, decided I should play God. Everything went great until I got a call from the director who was asking to have lunch with me. He was on the verge of crying. He said, the distribution company believes that you cannot play this role. That's right. Although, if I'm asked what religion I am, I say I was raised a Muslim. I don't introduce myself as a Muslim woman, but I guess the distribution company put the dots together and felt it's too early for this. See, there's conflicting reports on that. I, George I, I, Nolfi said that he, he'd sort of changed his mind because they didn't want to go overboard with this sort of theology. I mean, that does make sense, because y- you've got a couple of nods to it, but mm. I think it's quite on the nose what they're meant to be signifying anyway. Yeah. It's quite um, obvious, but it wouldn't be the first time something like this would have happened in this industry. Is probably what I'm going to say on this matter. Yeah, that's true. You can feel that the ending's been changed, because it is a quite anticlimactic in a, in a way, isn't it? You know? They're... Yeah, just answer the Falcon turns up again. And then... Yeah, and he's like, I had a chat with the boss. Turns out everything's fine. Yeah, you know? exactly. And, it, and it's just one of those things where you just think, like, it could have been a lot better. Two minutes and 23 seconds into the movie, Madeleine Albright, uh, former US Secretary of State under the Clinton administration, briefly appears uncredited. But oh, I couldn't awesome. find it. I, I, didn't, I, I found this out after I'd watched the film. <laughs> and I was just mm. like, I'm not entirely sure I know who that person is, but I think it's kind of interesting she's in there. Yeah, she turns up <laughs> on Parks and Recreation as well. You know? oh, does she? So Leslie Nope has, uh, has lunch with her in Washington. Okay, so it's definitely sort of like in character for her to yeah. do that. The visual effect on top of the rock where they run up the stairs to the observation platform, turn around and go down the stairs and find themselves still on the observation platform in production was nicknamed the MC Escher stairs shot. Yeah, I did like that. That was a nice of. that was a nice touch that. It reminded me a little bit of Doctor Strange, just yeah. that one little shot cuz I said Doctor Strange sort of turned it up to like 50 50,000. It's it's trying to ascertain where the cut is, isn't it? You know, trying yeah. to work out it where is, the... I'm guessing that there must have been some kind of green screen and maybe they stitched it together but yeah. I'm not really sure. Now, I don't have any confirmation as to whether this is actually was intentional or not, but the names of the three main members of the Adjustment Bureau are Thompson, Richardson, and Harry, a play on the term Tom, Dick, and Harry, <laughs> which is slang for any anonymous persons. Yeah. But I just thought that was quite funny. Lovely. <laughs> nothing else. Lovely. 
love it. Richard Mullen, the founder of the journal Science Fiction Studies, described the mm-hmm. story that this is based on, so yeah. the adjustment team, as Philip K. Dick's first tentative try at Frederick Pohl's Tudor Under the World theme, in which is it is imagined that mundane existence is totally a product of unseen manipulators. Yeah. I, I looked up that story. I looked it up as well. It's, it's nuts. It's, I kind of want to I, read it, actually. I, 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 yeah, I want to read it because I didn't feel the Wikipedia synopsis really was doing it justice, you know? No, yeah, I felt I felt as though, like, the intrigue was lost a little yeah. in the wiki. But it read like a Twilight Zone episode, mm. and I was so intrigued. Yeah. I mean, it's that, that 1950s kind of sci-fi feel to it, so it's, that's not surprising. that there's, Yeah, it's that, that kind of, like, that, you know? that paranoia that was quite prevalent in that time. Outside of the bar written on the wall is, 24 hours in a day, 24 beers in a case. Coincidence? I think not. Which is a quote attributed to Paul Newman, <laughs> who apparently really liked beer. Didn't Paul Newman make salad dressing? Yes, at one he point? did. So yeah, he's, maybe he's got, they still got a brand. It's very popular. <laughs> maybe his plan was to fill the uh, these cases with twenty four bottles of salad dressing. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, every hour of the day, another bottle of Caesar. <laughs> Can't imagine that. I can't imagine that going down. In his speech at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner, President Barack Obama responded to criticism from star Matt Damon with, mm-hmm. Matt Damon said he was disappointed in my performance. Well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> he says, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau right back at you, buddy. You know? yeah, just, there, like, <laughs> just don't get on the wrong side of Obama because he will just burn you. He's just going to do stuff to you that you're going to remember. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not in that way. <laughs> oh, no, but that is a good threat. I'm going to do stuff to you that you will remember right, i'm gonna like steal that yeah <laughs> yeah i'm gonna find somewhere for that in the credits they give a special thanks to the chairman <laughs> <laughs> awesome anyway that is my facts thanks for those phil now a key part of the characterization of damon's david norris character is that he's a congressman who is running to be senator for new york for brits like myself this could be potentially a bit confusing so i've enlisted an old friend to help explain it to us so hi i'm tori marroquin i am a u.s U.S. history and world history and political science teacher. I teach 10th grade right now in New York City. Tori, it is an absolute honor to have you on here. I'm super happy to see you too and so pleased to be a part of this. Can you tell us briefly what the three branches of American government are for British listeners and how they interact with each other? The, the three main branches of power are judicial, legislative, and executive. I'll go in reverse order for explaining them because the most visible is the executive. So the, the president is the head of the U.S. government. Then there's the, the legislature, which in the U.S. has two houses, the House and the Senate. They make the laws which the president then technically executes. And then you have the judicial branch, which basically makes sure, you know, falls up with, uh, you know, what's legal and what's illegal. And then in the United States at the federal level, that's the Supreme Court of Justice. And basically, actually, this is something that a lot of people don't don't know, even in the United States, the Supreme Court doesn't really weigh in on just any court case. It only mm-hmm. weighs in when the question has to do with interpreting the Constitution. So all they can do essentially is say constitutional or not constitutional. So then in terms of how they relate to each other, we have a system that we describe as checks and balances. Mm-hmm. There's a relationship that's there between them, but none of them is supposed to have significant power over the others. For example, there's a, there's a bleed that happens because the president gets to nominate Supreme Court justices, but it is up to the Senate to confirm the, the appointee. Mm-hmm. But then, so that court justice can serve um, with impartiality, they are there for life. It's the only position in U.S. government, in the federal government, that is a lifelong A lifetime term. position, yeah. yeah. In turn, the Supreme Court gets to decide if 
anybody else does something unconstitutional. So if a presidential action is unconstitutional or if um, you know laws that are created are unconstitutional. So that's the balance that they have in turn. Mm-hmm. So there's a system that's there that's supposed to be to, to exist in order to ensure that neither of the three legs of the stool acquire too much centrality in the position. Yeah. I love the use of the word supposed there in that bit. Yeah, well, it's, it's... that's the thing is that if you're a president and you're nominated with, you know, majorities in the House and Senate, you can do a lot yeah. to carry out an agenda, which for you is great. But for those who might not agree with you is not great. And if on top of that, you have the opportunity to appoint a few Supreme Court justices, that's going to have a big impact in the long-standing political life of the country. You talked about the House and the Senate. What is the main difference between those two? So together they're called Congress mm-hmm. and then they eat, you know, each one literally has a branch in this in the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. Each, each of them has a wing there. Um, when the Founding Fathers created the infrastructure, or the backbone of the U.S. government, they decided that they wanted to have one group that would be elected by popular vote. Another fun fact, when the Constitution was written, the only people that could be voted by popular vote were the members of the House of Representatives. Of course. Everybody else was indirectly chosen. So they served for two-year terms, and the reason for that is they wanted it to be like high turnover. If they didn't like them, out they go. They wanted one part of the government to be very kind of um, foot on the ground, responsive to people's needs in the moment as political things, uh, as the political winds were shifting, you know, so yeah, yeah, yeah. politics. So that was the goal of the House. And then the Senate was supposed to be the exact opposite. Basically, they serve for six-year terms. So the mm. idea is to protect them from having to constantly be you know, thinking about the next election. Um, they would be able to do more of a reasoned, seasoned thinking of um, get, get to know policy more, whereas the House was meant to be you know, passions of the times. The thing about Congress that seems mental to me is that if you're only there for a two-year term, you've got to be raising thousands of dollars a day for your re-election campaign if you want any hope of holding on to your job. So yeah. surely it gets counterintuitive because you can't necessarily focus on what you're there to do because you've got to keep raising money for the next battle that comes along. They produced a documentary series for Netflix called Explained. Okay. And they, they have one, they have a three episode segment on th- this election, actually. Mm-hmm. And in one of them, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez explains like literally what party elders were telling her, like, look, from day one, this is how you should up your schedule. And they interview other members of Congress who are like, yeah, so in my schedule, the first four to five hours of the day, I'm spending on the phone fundraising. And then when you look at like the rest of their schedule, like when the issues get time, it's minimal. So like they start out, you know, they tell you, start, start your day with the most important tasks. <laughs> well, they do. <laughs> it's insane that the members of the House, in terms of their, what they have to do for fundraising constantly. It, yeah. As our New York correspondent, um, could you give us an idea of uh, what a, a Senate race or, or possibly even a congressional race would look like in New York? Well, you know, it's interesting because that has meant has changed a lot with the years. You know, New York's last Republican senator was sent in the 90s. But since then, it's been all Democrats. Both yeah. of them have been Democrats. And famously, one of those... Uh, New York senators was Hillary Clinton. Actually, mm. that was her in between being Secretary of State and being uh, First Lady. She was a senator for New York. Uh, and then in terms of like what that means for like congressional races, it, that's changed a lot because you have people like AOC, 
who've really like changed the game here. Just quickly explain who uh, AOC is. Yeah, so Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a political outsider who became mm-hmm. an insider very quickly. And she's become quite a national and international personality and face yeah. of, of like for the progressive movement in the United States. So, you know, she worked as a bartender as a, and, and the, the most impressive thing about her was her grassroots campaign. Yeah. She literally went door to door. She has these shoes that like are completely worn down from that experience. She didn't beat like a Republican. Who'd been mm. there. She beat a Democrat who had been there for, I think a couple decades at that point. And he didn't even live in like the neighborhoods and yeah. the district that he was representing, which is another uh, sad and common feature in American politics too. Absolutely. Tori, I could talk to you quite happily all day about this stuff because I find this fascinating and my goodness, it has been an absolute joy to talk to you again. But I'd better wrap this up here. <laughs> Thank you so much <laughs> for spending for time to talk me. to us. Great to be part of it. Okay, Phil, that was Tori. What did you think? It's like watching my wife Elise talk about politics. Elise is just as into sort of like, <laughs> or just as knowledgeable about that. But it was really insightful as well because, like, it's just some things about the American Constitution and the way that it sort of gels together. I, I, I just, I look at it and I just think that's a lot of things. Mm. You know, just it all just seems like I don't know. To my mind, I, I think it seems overcomplicated, but at the same yeah. time, it's designed to be fair. Delightfully yeah. wacky is how I would describe it at the moment. Yeah, you know? it, it's got a certain charm. <laughs> I would say, but yeah. it's, uh, no, it's. I mean, it's a lot clearer if then if you compare it to like the British legal system, where I think basically the way it's done is okay. These are the rules. Pass it on. Yeah, it's just like one of those things. Like the UK government seems to just make up a rule and just go. <laughs> so we'll just see if this works, and then afterwards maybe like we'll scrap it and do something different. I don't know. I've not decided. <laughs> oh, that's too. That's too true. <laughs> anyway, without further ado, it is time for. <gasps> Finding the faith in the film. <laughs> I could, I got to laugh then. My I'm going to leave that in. I think my, that's perfect. My voice just perfect. went on me there. I don't know what happened. <laughs> so, big question for you. Can you change God's mind? It depends on how much he likes chocolate brownies. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I'm really not sure how to answer that question uh, seriously. <laughs> okay. Well, believe it or not, there is actually some form in this area oh, okay. uh, of examples of God changing his mind, or at least appearing to change his mind. For this, today's episode, we're going to go a bit more Old Testament than usual. That doesn't mean we're going to rain fire and vengeance on our enemies. That's next Aww. week. Oh, <laughs> you promised. <laughs> so, are you familiar with the character of Abraham? I can't for the life remember what his role in... Sure. So... Abraham is one of the patriarchs, or very, very early patriarchs of of Israel, okay, and and of the Jewish faith. So there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob later changes his name to Israel. uh, I see. Right. That makes sense. So Christianity, Judaism, and Islam can all trace their lineage, spiritual or, or otherwise, back to Abraham. So when we talk about Abrahamic faiths, we're talking about one of those three, okay? I see. Okay. It sort of comes under the umbrella term of. Yeah. It's those monotheistic faiths that we've got there. Yeah. So Abraham is this dude in Genesis. God loves him. Whatever he does, it's pleasing God, okay? 
And there's not, there's certainly not that many people out there doing that at, that at this point. I'm gonna draw your attention to Genesis 18 and it's quite a long section. So I'm gonna have to ask you to bear with me. Top of Genesis 18, it says, the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. So right before we even get into anything into, into anything else, we've already got a really weird slash interesting setup because we, we've seen in other things that God, you can't just appear before him. Mm. That if you do, your head will explode. <laughs> yeah. For, <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if that was the case? You just go, like, I can't. I'm sorry, God. Like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to look at you, but I'd, I've yeah. got, to, I've got to be somewhere at six, and there... I can't be dead for it. <laughs> I probably need to spend more time looking at this, but there seems to be. It's almost like the special dispensation in this case, or it could be that we've got three beings who are sort of God's representatives, more like. Right. Or it, it could simply be. In my notes, it says at least two of the three of the men were angels, uh, and the third may have been the Lord Himself. Or, I mean. More also seen three people well that's father son and holy spirit surely but i i look forward to the theologians correcting me on this one so anyway <laughs> that's the scene set god has literally turned up abraham has just seen him walking in the desert and he said would you like to stop in for a cup of tea <laughs> Nice. Now, there's something, I'm going to draw your attention to verse 20 to 33. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down to see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So are you vaguely familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, he, he basically decimated the place, didn't he? Because it yeah. was not of the Lord. It, yeah, a bit like was... Stockport, a bit like Stockport. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't going to draw comparisons. No, I. I just can't help myself. If but, I ever say, if I ever say the term, it's not of the Lord. I immediately think of Stockport. That's definitely, <laughs> definitely your fault. <laughs> so, so anyway, two two cities, very bad people in them. Um, yes, 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 yes. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, "Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the?" sake of the 50 righteous people in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? And the Lord, I have no proof for this, but I imagine he says it with a heavy sigh. <sighs> for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? <laughs> I can imagine at this point, he's just like, look, right, I yeah. can see a pattern emerging here. Yeah. <laughs> this goes on and on and on until it says, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. 
Now that could potentially be seen as one of the earliest examples of God changing his mind. But it's a little bit shaky because as we learn later on, there's only one righteous man in Sodom uh, he's a guy called Lot, and God destroys the place anyway and just gets Lot out of there. At least he did right by the righteous guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it, it's difficult to say whether is he actually changing his mind there or is he simply humouring Abraham. Now, I thought I'd turn to a stronger example that I found. You, you're vaguely familiar with the story of Moses, right? Vaguely familiar. He was in a basket at one point, saw a burning bush, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're in that kind of burning bush territory where Moses is up Mount Sinai and the people oh, yeah. are getting a little bit frustrated and they end up building a golden calf. I vaguely remember The Prince of Egypt, the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember it from the Charlton Heston film. So we're all in the same, oh, well, same area. Yeah, we're, you know? we're in the same sort of ballpark. So I'm going to read something to you here. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom, brought, whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means like they can't change direction. They can't They can't be turned, you know? They're, 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 they're um, what's the, oh, there's a great word for this that I've like never blinkered. been able to use. Not, blink, not even no. blinkered, no. Um, um, Obstinate? Philistines. Yeah, that's not the thing. Um, oh, I mean, we I'm sure it's a real thing. It is. A, it's a real thing. The Philistines are their own thing, and David defeats oh, them. Oh no, no, I actually was completely wrong. Okay. Anyway, I have seen these people. The Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains? and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give your descendants all this land, I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, it's it's a long wordy section, but that bit, mm. verse 14, then the Lord relented. You get the impression of this almighty, omnipotent, omnipresent omnipotent being going ah oh, fine whatever <laughs> all right yeah if you say i shouldn't smite them i won't smite them then you know you you and your sandals and yeah. your stick and <laughs> your, your, your your good morals he's basically saying to to moses okay as it's you i won't wipe them off the face of the earth then you know i love that it's like <laughs> look God, we go way back, right? And yeah, you know, yeah. just you just you know you my boy. <laughs> you, yeah, you know <laughs> you, you, you know you my boy. We're, we're gonna have to put aside for the fact that we've got a, a God so willing to smite people, and this really sort of is an area of, of Old Testament God, which I I struggle to recognise. So we'll have to pit, put a pin in that and come back to this. We'll come back to God as one of the homies. <laughs> Yeah. Just later on. <laughs> because this thing I find fascinating is the idea that God can change his mind. Or more accurately, you can change God's mind. It's if, quite an amazing thing to it think. It is amazing. It's, I remember <laughs> as a teenager finding this out, and it was like, what? 
Like, but I am but only one man. Yeah, there's certain caveats to it, obviously. You have to have been sort of actively seeking God's favour. Yeah, yeah. Um, it seems to be when you're asking for something on behalf of somebody else. So we get this idea. This is essentially almost what, what prayer adds up to. God, please help. This idea that he will intercede and he'll change things. And, and it's not all yeah. just, it's not that the course of human history is just running on rails. Yeah, so, it's more a case of the ra- this is the way that things are running. Can you please just alter this? Just just a surgeon. Yeah, yeah. So while researching this issue, I stumbled upon this concept called open theism. Now, I have to admit, I have only just found out about this. So please don't jump on me, listeners, if I get this wrong. But as I understand it, open theism says that since God and humans are free, God's knowledge is dynamic and God's providence is flexible. Now, you and me, we, we've talked about God being all-knowing versus free will before and it has sort of melted our brains a little bit i think that's probably the point actually yeah we're now entering the realm of gilesian headcanon okay (laughs) my favorite place (laughs) yeah so this is just my idea of how i think god operates and now to to anybody listening these views are lightly held so if you have a better idea i am all ears but I personally think that our God is the God of the contingency plan. I think the further into the future you go, the easier it is to predict things. And I think if the Lord does indeed have a plan for us, as I believe he does, he also has multiple ways of getting there. Like water flowing in a in a river. If you throw a rock in, the water will just find the other way around it. You yeah, know? yeah. I see what you mean. So I was trying to think of a, an example that would work, would have worked really well for you. And we've recently completed a, a short film for like our Advent series at church where Phil was the assistant director and helped me out to make it. So when it came to filming that film, we had a really small COVID friendly crew and it was you, me, the guy playing Isaiah and our cameraman, John. And because this was my project, it was what I was working on, I had to try and anticipate every possible thing that could go wrong and how to deal with that thing. So I brought more kit than I needed, which worked out well because John had forgotten something and I had it in my boot, so that was fine. Yeah. And if for whatever reason John hadn't made it, then you would have been filming and I would have been guiding you whilst doing the sound. Yeah, there was multiple avenues to the same outcome. Exactly. And if you had dropped out, then I'd be guiding John whilst doing the sound at the same time. And if Tony, the guy playing Isaiah, had dropped out, then I would have had to learn those lines super quickly. (laughs) Or if it had rained, we would have been filming under the bridge nearby rather than in that nice bit. The point I'm getting at is that one way or another, we would have come out of that with a a finished film that was getting getting the same point across. The, The details may have changed, but the end result would have been ostensibly the same. I understand you, yeah, of course. And that I makes think, perfect sense. And I think part of the reason that I really like this film is it's the best film I've seen so far that has tried to resolve God being omnipotent and human beings have free will. Because if you want something badly enough and it's gonna, not going to hurt you, I think God will change his plans for you, which is what we see at the end of this film, isn't it? The only way that it really affects anything is that it affects their personal lives and things slightly change in the world, but the, the natural order of things don't really become completely destroyed by them getting together it's just more of a mild inconvenience for the chairman <laughs> because it's just like well that's not my plan yeah the, the chairman god if you like he's, he sees how much these two people love each other and he's willing to change the plan to accommodate yeah. that that love you know and we're not going to spend as, as long on this because uh, because otherwise this podcast will run forever but this <laughs> this sort of links in into my idea that i think god is a romantic <laughs> 
I I think the Lord Almighty loves a good love story. He's I all have, about it, isn't he? He's all about yeah. love. He's well, all... this there's this phrase you hear, and it said so often that it becomes a cliche. This God is love. Most of the time, we're thinking about that as either uh, love for God, uh, uh, divine love, agape, as it's sometimes known. But I think also romantic love between two people eros love i think he's he's all about that as well there's yeah. a, a thing in genesis 29 where we've got jacob who to put him in context he's the grandson of abraham the fellow we were just talking about and jacob meets this girl rachel who is distant-ish relative he, he falls in love with her and he's absolutely nuts about her and cut a very long convoluted story short he ends up having to work 14 years before he can marry this girl he definitely loves her then yeah He gets tricked by her father and Genesis 29 verse 14 to to 30. I'll let you read it on your own time. But (laughs) I looked at that and went, okay, 14 years to marry the the girl who's the absolute one for you. And I became a Christian at 14 and I met the love of my life at 32. So I'm just saying Jacob (laughs) had it easy. You know? (laughs) It's Jacob's there just like, wow, I that took so long. I sacrificed so much and you're just there just kind of like, I, I did it longer though. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's basically how I feel on the subject, you know? You, you can t- stick that, Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. The idea that, that this film perpetuates is that love has a cost for it in some way, shape or form. And in this case, as it's set out by Thompson, beautifully played by Terence Stamp, is that mm. if David Norris is with Elise, he will miss out on his chance to be president and she will miss out on the chance to be one of the greatest dancers and choreographers of all time. And if we were watching La La Land, the story would be very different because they'd be like, <laughs> no, I want that thing. Screw you guys. Yeah, yeah. La La Land was basically the complete opposite, wasn't La it? it La was La Land like, is just the... like, actually, I just want to be an artist. Yeah. Soz. La La Land <laughs> is the absolute opposite of, of, of Adjustment Bureau in this sense, you know? And they, they go into it knowing that they will lose everything if they get this person. And yeah. I found that a very powerful message. You know, I thought that was, that was really interesting because it also can work as a, a metaphor for having a relationship with God. You have to potentially give up everything to to follow him. But the crucial twist at the end is that they don't have to give up everything. They have to be willing to sacrifice it. They go into it believing they're going to give up those things. But in the end, God says, do you know what? I'm going to let you have this thing. And, do you and... know something, though? You can relate to that even as an atheist. Oh, yeah. Because, like, you, you know, there are things you do give up when, yeah. you, when you are married, when you choose to be with someone the rest of your life but you're giving something up because you're giving it to someone else you're you're giving all of your attention to someone else and all your commitment and all of your love and the film painted that to be like this big scary kind of like you'll never have these opportunities again you peasant kind of thing Mm -hmm. and and now it's more I I guess it's just because I don't have a relationship with God myself Mm -hmm. Um, but I saw it as a bit sort of like well there's no saying that they couldn't do that and why would this being be so cruel as as to not let them just at least give it a go and try. The 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 chairman, as portrayed in the in the adjustment bureau, is, is firm, has has a plan, wants people to to enact that plan, but if it's really the desire of your heart, he's he's not gonna withhold that from you. Yeah. God I think that's that's as, revealed in the end. I think sometimes when you're a non Christian, you look at Christianity and all you can see is the things you have to give up. 
and it's it would be like describing your marriage in terms of giving up things of all the things yeah. you don't go so for example I can't just go to the cinema whenever I feel like it anymore <laughs> I can't just eat whatever I want whenever I want anymore I can't I can't just drive around the country and see my friends every single weekend if I like you know and when you put it in these stark terms of all the things you're missing out on it does seem quite bleak but the thing you're omitting from that description is that you find someone who loves you and you love them back and it is intoxicating it's a sense of wholeness and yeah sort of completion in yourself and it's it's unlike anything else and that's the thing that i wish i could get across to people about what being a christian is like but i've not found the words yet that's fair enough i'm not <laughs> sure i'd be able to describe it well i, I could i couldn't describe marriage a minute ago so there you go <laughs> so i'm the, still very new to it though so the uh, the last thing i want to talk about is anthony mackie's lines whilst they're at the top of 30 rock when oh, david yeah. david says to him you're the chairman and anthony mackie's harry goes no you've met him though or her everybody has the chairman comes in different forms to everyone so people rarely realise it when it happens. That yeah. links in very closely with something Matthew 25, verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did you, we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That's an idea that we we see often. This thing of, of whatever you've done for this person, you've done for me. That makes total sense on a on just an intuitive level if you can imagine your daughter already born and already in the world and grown up and whatever if somebody does something for her if she scrapes her knee and somebody picks her up then they've done that for you haven't they so in the same way you would be incredibly grateful that somebody would do something for her god is exactly the same you know it's easy to understand that one one last little thing that I just thought of. Go for it. Going. I wanted to put this by you, basically, uh, because I don't know if there's any truth to it or not. But um, there's a line where they say they can only go through those doors wearing trilbies because it's a way that the chairman limits their power. Mm-hmm. Are the trilbies a direct reference to Angel's Halos? <laughs> it's something I just thought of then. I was just like, you know, that would make a lot of sense, actually. <laughs> yeah. We will have to save that for another episode because we are massively running massively over time. Over time yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate every single solitary one of you. Our next episode <laughs> is going to be on... Drumroll, please. <laughs> Star Wars. Hey! We're, <laughs> we're finally doing an episode on Star Wars. Phil has been asking for this for ages. You know it's... what? I have a good feeling about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so please join us for that one. In the meantime, Phil, have you had a good time? Absolutely. I tell you what, that film feels a lot less frustrating now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I could probably watch it again. <laughs> Fantastic. And lovely to speak to you, Phil, as always. Listeners, as always. have a good week. We will we'll speak to you next week. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Cole. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Austin. Fact checking by Christina Stanard Good. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review. Unless it's a 
one star, in which case, tell Phil by harnessing the power of the reality stone. Create a pocket universe that mimics the setting for a 1950s sitcom with Phil and Giles as the stars and write the words, Jigger and Biff, you're just not that interesting lads, on every newspaper, letter and billboard.